Welcome to Dementia Dialogue. Stories bring us together and help us to understand one another. Our podcast gives people with lived experience of dementia a way to share their stories with each other and the broader community in order to increase understanding and connection and to decrease stigma. In this episode of Dementia Dialogue, we begin a new series on a topic that many shy away from, dying and dementia. While these conversations may feel uncomfortable, they are so important in making sure we honor the experiences and wishes of the people who live with this progressive disease. Today, guest host Jillian McConnell of the Brain Exchange speaks with Anne-Marie Stoneberg, a death doula or end-of-life care facilitator, about her experiences in supporting families through the dying process. Let's listen in. All right. Well, welcome, Annie. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to jump right in and get us started with my first question, which is that most people, if they're familiar at all with the term doula, it tends to be associated with birth. So can you explain what a death doula is and the services that you provide? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me, Jillian. It's great to to be here and to hear your lovely voice. Mm-hmm. Interesting, you know, birth doula uh, is is quite common, and people certainly uh, resonate with it and find awareness. Death doula, uh, not so much, but really not a lot of difference. When we, you know, look back in our uh, our history and our roots in Greek mythology, doula is to help or to serve. And when you think about that in terms of birthing, that's the, you know, the the job of a, of a of a of a doula is to support the birthing partner to support the person having that baby in in all aspects of that birth, not just the actual physicality. So really death doula or end of life care facilitator is another way of saying death doula pretty much does the same thing. It's supporting uh, somebody uh, who is dying, uh, supporting somebody who is maybe um, looking at planning their their funeral or planning uh, because of terminal illness, and then also supporting the family before during and after death. Are the services that you provide, do they differ depending on the individual or your clients um, and their particular needs? Yeah, great question. Absolutely. Um, First off, you know, our, I, I like to think that my approach is holistic and individual and obviously person-centered. And in order to for that to happen, you have to have these really authentic conversations with, with the people uh, who matter most about what matters most. So it's absolutely very individual. It certainly depends on the circumstances that have brought us together. So is this, you know, somebody who is, um, you know, actively dying in a long-term care home uh, from a terminal illness? Is this a child who, um, you know, tragically and unfortunately is dying? Um, And who are the other players? Who's involved in this person's world? Who is this person's world? Again, when we touch on dementia care, uh, they're people who support from, you know, not only an emotional perspective, but that power of attorney and that legal perspective, the rights and wishes uh, of somebody. So it's fairly individual in any family you meet. If you've met one family in chaos, you've met one family in chaos. Uh, each family is different. The dysfunction within our families are different. Um, and if we think we don't have dysfunction, then we're lying to ourselves. Uh, we all do. And it certainly rears its um, ugly head uh, when and if we're, we're faced with a crisis or a change. And also the changing roles um, when somebody is uh, you know terminally ill or actively dying, just 
those personalities that come out within the family tend to be larger than life. Uh, so again, it's really independent, independent and an individual case-by-case uh, case basis, which for me speaks to the uniqueness of dying. There is no one size fits all. Well, it's so funny you say that if you've met one family in chaos, you've met one family, because that's often what we talk about when we talk about dementia. If you've met one person with dementia, you've only met one person, and you certainly can't extrapolate those symptoms or characteristics to anybody else, um, because we're so individualized about with that diagnosis and how it impacts us. So it's nice to see that carry over into other things as well and be respected and, and adhered to. So so you mentioned family members and and how they're incorporated into the process and maybe I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but can you give some examples of say what sort of services that you would provide for a family compared to say another instance where it might be a bit different just to see what for our listeners, what that might look like? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I had one uh, family and the daughter was was really quite determined that uh, certain things happened for mom. And daughter was coming at it from a, a cultural belief and almost a religious aspect. And she was really determined and mom didn't want that. <laughs> so it was being able to unpack a little bit of... Um, well, giving control back to mom first off, but also just being able to unpack a little bit of why why do you feel this is important to mom when mom doesn't feel it's important? And, you know, I, I often talk about, and I certainly see in my practice and in my lectures, cultural components, uh, rituals and beliefs are so important. They are a foundation, but they have to be shared by the person who's actually dying as well. Um, so it was just about being able to step back and get a sense of where the daughter was at in her her own grief as her mother was preparing to die and being able to say to her that it's, it's okay if those things aren't in place for a number of reasons most importantly is mom doesn't want them and then being able to to help mom say that to be able to have mom say uh that's not what's important to me this is and then having that play out so another example that comes to mind for me, just speaking about that individuality and, and the uniqueness of, of the journey, um, it was almost three years to the day. I had a, a couple, uh, the husband was dying of very advanced and aggressive uh, lung cancer, and uh, it was quick. It was three weeks, three weeks from diagnosis and uh, his, his death. So those three weeks were a roller coaster of, you know, emotion and, and planning and numbness and all that grief, that grief journey as well rolled into such a short time span. And, and what really struck me in this example is mom so desperately wanted to protect the children from what was happening, um, you know, to dad and um, thought she was doing what was best. Uh, I, I came in and, and was able to be, um, you know, part of thinking of some 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 things that they could still do in the time left that provided them with normalcy. They used to have date wine nights on on Friday nights. So, um, you know, one example to that was uh, for the three Friday nights that he was alive in the hospital. They did have date night, and and again, it speaks to uh, people not knowing we can do that. Can do anything you want. <laughs> Um, so uh so so we set that up and uh and that just brought such you know such peace for for mom and dad as they were able to still have those date nights knowing that they were certainly going to be coming to an end but what was really interesting i was at the house one day um, a couple of days before dad died and 
the daughter was really angry and really lashing out. She was uh, in her early 20s and uh, mom had tried her best to protect her from the last three weeks. And what had come into the house was a recliner for the living room so that so dad could sit with comfort uh, in the recliner. Her her goal and, and dad's goal was that he would he would die at home. So there was this big cumbersome recliner in in the living room and um the daughter said you know you didn't even ask me about the recliner and, and the, the mom said well I didn't think you'd really care it's a recliner she says but I do care and you you haven't told me anything and I feel like I'm out of the loop I come home from school and there's a recliner in the middle of my living room you know and it took us a, a couple of minutes and it took me a few seconds to realize okay I know where we're going and as we started to unpack the recliner and its clumsiness in the living room, it wasn't the recliner. It was the fact that the daughter felt out of control, that she hadn't been included in the processes that were going on and some of the, you know, the instructions. And it wasn't the recliner as much as it was, please include me. I want to know what we're doing for dad. So again, we go from all kinds of examples where everything can be out on the table to where some of the best of our intentions are to protect those we love. And it actually backfires. And what was interesting is she actually took the recliner back. She returned it to the store. And if you know, if you want to have a funny, and I can always find a funny, it was still under the 30-day guarantee. So the recliner went back. Um, but I was, I did say to the daughter, I'm really proud of you for bringing this up. I'm really proud of you. And, and she says, well, the recliner helped. I said, awesome. The recliner helped, but it got you to talking and sharing. And the daughter saying, mom, share with me. It's going to be you and I, I want to help you. We were in this together. So the recliner was, uh, was certainly the catalyst for that. Oh, what, what a nice story. And, and, and it really demonstrates your role within that in both of those examples. So thank you for sharing that course, this is called the Dementia Dialogue podcast. So we are dementia related and looking at or cognitive impairments of any sort. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your services and how they might differ for someone that has a dementia or an age-related cognitive impairment, because that must bring along certain challenges, not insurmountable ones, I, I would doubt, but um, still challenges nonetheless. So I was wondering if you could speak to the type of support that you would provide for someone with a dementia or cognitive impairment who was end of life? Great question. And I think it could be looked at from a variety of different angles or facets. Um, certainly in my experience, the people that I have worked with who have a, a cognitive diagnosis or a brain failure or dementia, they do have a power of attorney or they do have somebody in place who is there in order to uh, hopefully facilitate the best decisions, you know, for them in the absence of them having capacity to do so for themselves. Um, so I, I think what I really notice about this, unfortunately, is uh, the anticipatory grief that comes with a family saying goodbye for the second, third, or fourth time. And then depending on the type of dementia, unfortunately, uh, sometimes uh, it changes the trajectory of those last few days, or certainly those last few hours. But in terms of my experience, it has always been with a caregiver, a care partner who has the best interests of their loved one with dementia at mind. And for me, that's because those conversations about what matters most have to happen all the time. They have to happen around the dinner table when we're in our 40s and we're in our 50s. They have to happen when we unfortunately are faced with uh, facing our mortality when someone we care about dies or there's a sudden death. Then we start thinking, well, I want to make sure these things are in place so that 
my family, my children don't feel that way, um, aren't burdened by that. One of the biggest fears of those who are dying is burdening and leaving a burden. So that can certainly be uh, diminished if we talk about what's important to us, what our wishes are. I do find, again, just to kind of wrap that up around uh, your question, that I can find myself going back to, you know, the care partner and, and I'll say, if mom could tell me what she wants, what would that be? If dad was able to choose, what would he choose? So it really takes the pressure and the focus off, well, this is what I want, and really puts it back on if they were able to tell me and if, if somebody was able to advocate for themselves, what would that sound like? And as an outsider stepping in, it's easier for me to do because I don't, I don't have any, any history with the players per se, you know, as I said, I'm not part of the dysfunction, I'm happy to join it, but I'm not staying. So I'm, I'm able to ask those questions, I, I'm able to say that confidently, what would mom want if mom could tell us right now, what would that be? I did have a, a beautiful, beautiful man who had dementia, vascular dementia, and his last days, he wasn't able to close his eyes. And, you know, for many of us, we see that vision of peace when our eyes are closed or we can't see what's going on behind them. Uh, so it was really difficult for the family because his eyes wouldn't stay shut. So that really brought out a lot of, um, you know, ugh, really catastrophic reactions and really traumatic grief before even, you know, the, the death. So I, I was able to say to the care partners, are you comfortable just putting your head on his chest and not looking at his eyes? Is, is that okay? Can you be close to dad that way? How about on the other side of the bed, holding dad's hands with your head on his shoulder? So there's always a way to make it work. You know, I, I would never settle for, well, that's just the way it is. I don't believe that. I believe everything can be better. Um, when we're talking about our, you know, our, our transition from this world, there's always ways to make it easier for, for those who are left behind. And I believe in, in the same way we're honoring the wishes and the wants of what that person who can no longer tell us would want if they could. Mm -hmm. And the other, just to, just to add to that, you, you know, you made me think um, certainly often I, I will see at the bedside, especially when we're talking about those anticipatory grief journeys that so many clients have been on when the person does finally transition some people it's relief for other people it's utter sadness mm -hmm. for other people it's just utter even not more than sadness but it's just they're gone and this role that I've been in is now gone um, and that starts you know almost immediately because those roles when we're caring for someone with dementia and with brain failure those roles are all encompassing there is no give uh, and and you know that's the the beauty of loving someone when we love someone we know that we will eventually lose them to death but when we are so engrossed in that caregiving it's almost another instant shock. Most definitely. Which leads me to my next question along those same lines. When we're talking about MAID, so medical assistance in dying, where the death may not be quite such a shock if someone has elected to go that route, yet still devastating in its own way. And are you able to provide um, support and services to those individuals, whether they've chosen MAID or whether they've decided to receive or to go through that end of life care without sort of any other um, interventions or anything like that? Does that matter? 
No, absolutely not. Um, and again, we're looking at that holistic component. We're looking at how do we support the family? How do we acknowledge that someone is, you know, someone is dying or someone has chosen this as their way to die? We have no medical connection to it. We support the decision that that has been made. Just as we would with somebody with dementia, we're supporting the decisions either written down by that person before or carried out by that power of attorney for care because those are what would have been the wishes of that person and those people who are charged with making those decisions are the ones that matter the most so being able to tell those who matter most what matters most to you I know that sounds like a bit of a tongue tie but it really is one of my favorites it's what matters most to you. You need to tell the people who matter most because they're the ones who are vested in delivering it for you and making sure that it's, you know, that it happens. So absolutely made. I've had a few uh, clients and I've worked closely with the families around, you know, what, what to anticipate, uh, what this might look like. Certainly when, when you, when you start those conversations with a um, with a couple who are talking maid or a family, they've already pardon the pun made the decision. So so some of that those initial authentic conversations have already taken place to get them to this point. Uh, and then again, I'm I'm guiding. I'm just along to, you know, make sure that that all those wishes wherever we can are carried out, and to support the family as as they, you know, journey with their loved one. That's wonderful. And, and I think um, really important to make that distinction that it doesn't matter and what your role is, regardless of any decisions made prior to or, or currently is really, um, I think, helpful for people to hear. You had alluded to this, but I'll get specific, just make sure that there's no um, misunderstanding. You mentioned about providing care to somebody that's in the home, in their own home. You mentioned about providing care for someone that was um, in a hospital setting. So obviously you're able to provide the service no matter where that person is located, which is fantastic. Um, I'm curious though, what has been your relationship with those working in a hospital setting? And to, obviously you're not part of the clinical team by any, any sort, but how are you received by those clinical team members, the physicians, the nurses, uh, maybe respiratory therapists or what have you? Are they aware of your, your role and how to, are you received in that role? Great question. My experiences certainly have all been positive. Uh, you know, we have been through a, an incredible loss in the last three years. And I think that, uh, you know, especially in the long-term care in our hospital setting, we have many gaps. We have gaps in our service where people can't be everything to everyone and, and do everything for everyone. So, you know, if you take it back to the uh, the birth doula, the, the, the person who's bedside with the laboring mother, it's really no different. We're adding support, we're providing support, we're being that go-to for the family as their loved one labors, because uh, I really believe it is, to death. Uh, so I think that in the last maybe five or seven years, the awareness and advocacy for death doulas and end-of-life care facilitators has increased quite a bit across Canada. And that is because you know, a variety of reasons, but, and I'm a little bit off topic from what you're asking, but I think it does come back. And that is that people have the right to choose what they want, and where they want to do it. And we're looking at a demographic of baby boomers who want things a certain way, um, are prepared to 
maybe purchase a service or are prepared to augment services with other complements. And, and I think that's part of what, how we're seeing and why we're seeing this call to service, you know, in, in the hospitals. But I really do believe there is a place given the gaps, the medical gaps that we have, you know, in medicine and our, our amazing medical teams are doing their job. My job has more to do with that connection with that patient, that resident, and the things that we've talked about that are important and matter most to them around family, around legacy, around, you know, funeral planning, things that I'm not a medical professional and a medical professional wouldn't do that. Uh, so we, we certainly have our roles. And, and I think, as I said, unfortunately, COVID and what we've been through has really highlighted that we need more of everybody. And if we can bring in bring in augmented team members to be part of that team. Uh, I think the, you know, if the more the merrier, if you ask me, uh, especially if that's what somebody is looking for and asking for, and that that's what their family wants. And that's what we're here to do. So in keeping with that train of thought and, and being part of a team or a different kind of member of the team, can you speak to the sort of training that you would receive as a death doula and what sort of education goes behind it? If, and is there additional training required for working with those clients who have cognitive impairments or dementia? Yeah. So um, when I started looking at, at the opportunity to do, to do this training, there wasn't very much in Ontario, to be honest. So I kind of cast my net a little wide. And it wasn't that long ago that I did this. It was five years ago. So we do have now a couple of colleges where you can um, take the training. Douglas College uh, has an end-of-life doula training. Durham College um, has a required advanced planning and scope of doula training I took my training at the Institute for Traditional Medicine, uh, a contemplative end-of-life care pro, uh, program, and I, I chose it on purpose. I chose it for the, uh, for the people who were going to come in and speak. I chose it for their experiences. So there certainly are um, more ways to get education, if you will. It's not a regulated profession, so there, there is no regulatory college or body right now that supports um, doula work. We have many associations across not only Ontario, but Canada, the support work, but certainly not regulated. But that said, I, I kind of think about if you were to hire or to interview a new doctor or a therapist, you'd go in with a list of questions and you'd go in with a with kind of a, an idea of who would be the type of person that you could feel you could talk to or get along with. And I don't think it's any different. Um, there has to be a connection. There has to be a match in, you know, in terms of style. Um, when it comes to dementia care, uh, for me, it's just such an easy, it's an easy flow because my background is dementia care. So it just comes naturally to me. I would like to hope that if somebody is going to be working solely in, you know, dementia care or long-term care homes as, as an end-of-life care facilitator, that they do take some extra training that's offered at so many incredible places around Ontario, to the Alzheimer's Society, the Brain Exchange. There's lots of places to get that, that information. So I, I don't look at it any different than I would be interviewing somebody for a job. I would be interviewing them and wanting to know not only are they a fit with me in terms of our personality, but what's their philosophy? What's their mantra? What's important to them in order to see whether that's a fit for me? Is it uncommon to talk with someone and say, yeah, this just, we don't, we don't align, or I think, you know, there might be someone else better for you that 
that might be more suitable? Or do you find that that happens very often? Uh, no, that's a great question. I don't know in other people's practice. I know for myself, right. it did happen once, uh, only once. And it was me just saying, I don't think that it's, I'm a fit for you. Meanwhile, I, I'm just thinking it wasn't going to work, but I just didn't feel like I was a fit. I didn't feel like I was in, in the conversations that we first started having that I was actually helping. I thought I was actually causing the, uh, the, the person to be more agitated and, and more stressed. So maybe somebody with a different personality uh, would be able to help better, or maybe somebody who understood and it's not that I didn't understand my work, but understood where she was coming from and what she wanted. Um, maybe there was a better fit for, for that client. Um, but it was only once. And it was just because I saw that I wasn't giving her, I wasn't telling her what she maybe wanted to hear. And sometimes that's like tough love, but I, I can't, I can't go to the party if I'm really not invited. Um, so yeah, it was only once. And, and again, you can tell pretty quick, whether or not you're going to hit it off with somebody. Uh, in most cases, when somebody has requested the services of a doula, you're already halfway there because somebody is, is you know, interested in advocacy. They're aware that they have choices, is aware that they're aware they want to make it better for their loved one who's dying. So you're kind of already halfway to the, to the party. Um, so I've, as I said, it was only once for me. Speaking to that, so how do people find a death doula? What is that process like? Are they going online and, and Googling it? Are they going to mention some associations and some um, schools and or organizations? So where would you begin if you were looking for um, the services of a death doula? It's, it's funny uh, that you say that, but yes, Googling is <laughs> certainly one of the places that you could go and start, but definitely make sure you put death in rather than just doula because you will receive lots of birth doulas. That said, uh, any hospice or palliative care uh, association or any um, hospice would, in your area would probably have a, a couple of uh, end-of-life care facilitators that have come in or they've worked with or maybe have done some staff education. And then there are some associations. There is the Ontario Doula Association. Uh, there's also Canadian uh, Association of, of Doulas, uh, and some really, really wonderful resources. I can certainly get some of those for you if that's helpful, and we can include those. But um, just some wonderful websites, wonderful um, uh, groups that people can join uh, to find out more information. But yeah, um, doctors, again, in your doctor's office, certainly um, in, uh, in long-term care, talking with um, the chaplaincy and the spiritual team, they may have a, a suggestion. But yeah, just right now, because it is so new, but the awareness is so heightened, just type in Death Doula Ontario. And the other is word of mouth. Of course, everybody knows I, I live, eat and breathe anything that has to do with helping people transition. So, uh, you know, my name just gets passed on by word of mouth um, as another example. Uh, you know, one example that is kind of a unique one, uh, Jillian, my dog and I are pet therapy partners with St. John Ambulance. So before COVID, we were into um, long-term care homes and retirement homes. And um, one of the coordinators for St. John saw on my resume that I am an end-of-life care facilitator. And I was absolutely shocked by the number of requests through St. John Ambulance for 
um, pet therapy at end of life. So just before COVID, my beautiful dog Mystic and I, we were we were on a run. We we had so many clients that we were seeing on a volunteer basis uh, because I had that end of life care uniqueness and had the pet therapy to go with it. We were quite busy. Wow. Which I which I found really so exciting for me and uh, and so validating, but at the same time, there are so many people who want things to be different and they want to have things a certain way and and there's every opportunity to do that. We just have to get the word out and you just you have to look around. So how do you know when to set things up and when to start having that you know a death doula coming in and when do we get the timing right? How do we know? <laughs> well, wouldn't that be wonderful if we knew that if we knew what um, what that timing was? We don't, and you know, I think I think it starts with conversations, and um, end of life care facilitators like myself can navigate those conversations. So, again, with with family or friends who you know want to have a conversation about what would this look like? What would I like to include? And people don't want to talk about it because they think it's they think it's going to happen, and that's not the case. We need a space to talk. We need a space to plan. But just because we're talking about it doesn't mean it's going to happen. We shy away from having these discussions, which in actual fact cause us more suffering. If we only knew what, you know, dad had wanted, if we only knew that Jack would have wanted this, let's start having those conversations, asking those questions earlier. Um, sometimes when someone receives a terminal illness uh, diagnosis, we end of life care facilitators, if that's what somebody is interested in, will come in and start thinking about how to put some decisions in place, understanding end of life care options, what those might be. So again, it really depends on the family. It really depends on what uh, the person is dying from, what that looks like in terms of a, of a trajectory it's all about talking. It's all about having those conversations. And, you know, for me, I'm just coming in and, and taking what you're telling me and putting it together for you. I'm just throwing it back and asking you, is this what you're saying? Is this, is this the meaningful plan you think you want? What else can we include in that plan? You know, I'm the one who can come in and say things like, is that the person you want to make those decisions for you? What about other options? Have you thought about other options? As I mentioned, a lot of um, uh, Canadians, 87% of us would love to die at home or wish to die at home. And that is much lower in actuality for a variety of reasons. And I had, I had my own aha moment, I'll tell you, just uh, last week or the week before. Um, I'm constantly looking and you know teaching. So I, I was looking at one of my slides and it talked about what I want for myself at my end of life, which is important because I want to make sure my wishes are written down so that those who matter most can carry those out. And I had an aha moment thinking, wait a second. I really want to either die in the backyard by my pool or I'd like to die at the beach by my cottage. But what if that's not helpful to my family? And I hadn't thought about that. And this is what I do. And here I am admitting it to you. So, of course, we had to have a conversation. And, and my kids are like, Mom, will you stop? But it's really important. That's important to me. But am I helping you in your grief journey that will be when I'm gone? by doing that because if not that's a conversation i think we need to have so we can adapt or adjust don't want to go to the cottage anymore because that's right. away then yeah. yeah 
And I see it for me, I see it as beautiful, but if you're going to see it as absolutely tragic and something that is stopping you from moving forward, then I need to change that. And I'm willing to do that. But if we don't have those conversations, you know, know, how do we know? And then, you know, some of our best laid plans, which are wanting to die at home changes as our, our condition might uh, worsen. Uh, We might decide, no, I want to be in the hospital now, but um, end of life care and um, death doulas can still be present, but we've just changed the location. um, and, And that's okay as well when we're thinking about how these services are covered, do our death doulas part of the provincial health insurance? Um, do private insurance companies cover death, the services of a death doula? Or is the person who's contacting you looking at paying out of pocket for that sort of service? Yeah, so as of right now, again, not regulated, not covered mm-hmm. under the Ministry of Health. Some private plans might cover if some people have a health spending account, for example, and can spend that how they will, um, that uh, certainly can can be done. But there is no coverage per se. I think that will change. I'm really um, excited to think that that will change just because it gives somebody another option. It just, it's, a, it's another tool in your toolkit, if you will, um, for planning and for, um, for, for your grief journey. Right. And, and speaking to, as you're saying about the role that birth doulas play um, in hospitals and how, um, and death doulas as well, but, and how both of those roles can help offset some of the services that medical teams have maybe in the past jumped in to help. And there's just not that resource available at this point um, at in time, if the role of a doula can come and help augment that, certainly there's value there without a doubt. Absolutely. I was, um, you know, and people do want to talk about it. They just need to be given the invitation to open the door. Uh, it, people want to talk about it more than we realize. Uh, as I said, we're such a, a death adverse society that that we think if we talk about it, it's going to happen. I was speaking with some residents in a long-term care home and this lovely gentleman, I think he was 88, he called me over and he had these little tears in his eyes. And he said, so if I'm hearing you right, you're going to help me plan my future. And I just love that. I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'm in. Wow. What a reaction. Is it that beautiful? So you're going to help me plan my future. And I thought, whoa, that's amazing. And that, that he, you know, that he actually was able to articulate it that way. And he was so excited that somebody wanted to talk to him about what that might look like for him, what his, his legacy to his children and grandchildren might look like and, and how and where he wants to die, even within the confines of this long-term care home. You know, uh, some simple examples are maybe moving the bed so it's facing the window, um, making sure that the lights are dim, making sure that all the medical equipment's taken out. We don't need to trip over walkers and wheelchairs when somebody's transitioning. So, you know, having that space as home-like as possible. Um, I had one client whose uh, family was just adamant that all of his favorite sports teams were hanging on hangers around his room. So he had football jerseys and hockey jerseys and baseball jerseys and caps, and it was all around his room and his room was facing the bird feeder. And we had just transformed his long-term care room into a little sanctuary that everywhere he looked, he saw something that he wanted to see that had been put there because he asked for it. It's, it's just really cool for me. 
Well, I think that's actually a really neat place to end. I, I have that that saying or, or that that end statement um, helping me with my future, and I think that's just such a lovely way to um, conclude today's conversation because it really is that's um, what you're doing is you're helping people with their future. So what a lovely way to to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been just lovely talking to you and so interesting hearing about your role. I, I only hope that uh, those that are listening can appreciate it as well. And hopefully we see the role of doulas increase, death doulas increase within the province and within the country in the coming years, because I think there's obviously an immense value and service you provide to the, to the people you serve. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jillian, for having me. As I said, it warms my heart to, to be able to speak about it. And if there's even one person out there who's nodding their head and saying, hey, I'd like more information or I'd like to chat, that to me is, is we're doing our job. We're giving people options and choices um, at all trajectories of living while we're dying, because that's what we're doing. We are living until we die. So thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Take care. This Dementia Dialogue episode is released under a new partnership of the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario and the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University. The Alzheimer's Society is excited to take on a leadership role in producing and marketing our podcast to strengthen the voice of people with lived experience of dementia. Dementia Dialogue continues to receive financial support through the Dementia Community Investment of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Please continue to follow us on Facebook. Our web address remains dementiadialogue.ca. You may also reach us through email at dementiadialogue at alzon.ca.